Good morning, and welcome to Watching Movies at the Bar, a podcast about bar movies and movie bars. Today, we are so, so fortunate to be joined by Siddhant Adlaka to talk about Blake Edwards' 1968 film, The Party. Siddhant, welcome. Thank you for having me. Good evening, in fact, for me. <laughs> Siddhant is a dear friend of mine, but also uh, a writer I adore. Um, he he often writes, especially in the way that he writes about uh, larger films, like like the Marvel films and the Christopher Nolan films, there is a, a thoughtfulness and an incredibly strong perspective that he brings to those things that a lot of people consume purely as spectacle. Um, and so, obviously, we're talking about a very different film today, but I'm so happy to be joined by him for that reason. Thank you so much. And also by my co-host, Bethy Squires. Bethy. Hi. How's it going? Um, before we kick off, I wanted to do a, a little brief check-in, Thomas. Something happened for the first time since we've started this podcast, watching movies at the bar. I watched a movie at a bar. Oh, Tell us more. New I know York you is sent me a back, message, baby. But we gotta we gotta fill in the listeners. Yeah. Um. So, uh, Los Angeles has decided that restrictions are for nerds, apparently. Uh, and you can sit at the bar now again. And I got to sit at the bar at my favorite uh place in Los Angeles, HMS Bounty. And Noy, my bartender, gave me the remote, and I put on a uh, Mission Impossible Fallout. And a movie Great I choice. didn't like in theaters for reason for I don't know reasons, <clears throat> but I really liked on mute at a bar. Well, I'm glad that you liked it at a bar. I uh, I will say I loved Fallout in theaters, but yes. I also am just in the bag for those movies. Love McQuarrie, mm-hmm. love Cruz as much of a maniac as he is. Those movies are for me. Yeah, I don't know what it, like, I, I know I'm like the only person in the world who didn't like Mission Impossible Fallout, and I'm fine with that. That's my cross to bear. But as a silent comedy, it fucking slaps. <laughs> Very good. Tell us, tell us more. What, what, what's an example of something in Fallout that plays at a bar that did not play for you in theaters? Um, honestly, it's the whole testy relationship between Tom Cruise and Henry Cavill, who have character names, I'm sure. Ethan Hunt. Ethan and Hunt. Henry Cavill. And, <laughs> uh, Mustache Man. Basically, like, I didn't care for the, like, I hate you. I hate you too, but we have to work together. It was, like, too fractious, and it's, like, just. Just turn heel already, Henry Cavill. We know you're going to be a problem. Um, but as a silent movie, it's just like, it's almost more like a Laurel and Hardy or like a Three Stooges. It's guys who <laughs> you can fill in blanks, pretend they're lovers. There's like more room for play in, in, in the headspace when it's just them using their big dumb bodies to punch and glare. Yeah, I will say the big difference is the Three Stooges never did a fucking halo jump at Magic Hour. <laughs> oh, but, what if they but did? But Sinan, you can correct me because you are a film historian in a way that I am not. What am I missing about the Three Stooges? Uh, you missed. You, you may not have seen Three Stooges and the Halo Jump, actually. Sidhant, <laughs> yeah. uh, where do you come down on uh, Mission Impossible Fallout? Are you a fan? Are you a, are you a foe? I am a fan. I like it quite a lot. It's not my favorite of the series, but um, 
yeah, when, you know, when Tom Cruise jumps out of a plane, you know, I, I've got to be there to see it. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> uh, when Tom Cruise jumps out of a plane, I am standing at uh, attention. I'm standing there to catch him, just in case. <laughs> 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 so, you know, not not to get too ahead of ourselves, but... Um, Siddhant, I, I, I was I was really excited when you said you'd be willing to come on the pod, and, and we bounced some ideas back and forth, and you landed on the party. Mm-hmm. What uh, what what's your history with the party? When did you see it first? Uh, I would have seen it probably around the age of nine or ten. Um, my dad was and is a real big fan of it, and um, uh, we would have seen it on DVD. Yeah, when I was around nine or ten, and um, I loved it back then. Watched it plenty of times. Uh, really liked it when I rewatched it recently. So that's the short version. That's that's a that's a great one. And, and the party is a collaboration between Peter Sellers and Blake Edwards, who previously had collaborated on the Pink Panther films, which were mm-hmm. huge for me as a kid. And I, I think that watching the Pink Panther as a child, I was not tracking many story beats. I didn't quite know what was going on. But when uh, Inspector Clouseau is uh, holding on to uh, the railings at the top of a stairwell and doing acrobatics and then falling in, in dramatic fashion, that was funny for me as a kid. That, that Peter Sellers getting hurt? That's good shit. <laughs> yeah, Bethy, I what's watched your... those. Sorry. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, I watched those as a kid as well. And like you said, you don't need to follow the story as long as you have... Peter Sellers resting his arm on a giant globe and falling down. <laughs> <laughs> Bethy, what's your relationship with uh, Peter Sellers and Blake Edwards or or the two of them together? I don't know if I have much of a relationship with either of them. I mean, I've watched Dr. Strangelove and that's like the main Peter Sellers I've gotten. I've, I don't think I've ever seen a single Pink Panther, like not even the Steve Martin version. Shocking as that may sound. <laughs> We uh we might actually have uh, two representatives of the contrarian Pink Panther take here, and that I think Sedant <laughs> <laughs> and I both think that movie at least has some pretty funny bits. Dembergere. <laughs> I feel like I might like it because I like Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. So I think when when Steve Martin is investigating, I'm there. That works for me. That could work. But um, I think for me, it's more like. Peter Sellers is more like a name that gets bandied around more than a person who ever lived in the real world to me. Like in comedy histories, he gets talked about so much and like so many people uh, like model their whole careers after him, you know, like um, Mike Myers or Hank Azaria. Um, a lot of people like really – really really vibe with his like disappearing into a role thing jeffrey rush yada yada rowan atkinson as mr bean true true um yeah i've never actually seen and and this is showing a huge gap in my knowledge but i haven't seen uh peter sellers early british comedies uh for which he is beloved i think a lot of people say you know that's some of his best work before he ever even made the transition to making these hollywood movies for which he's so well known by idiots uh like me but um sedant are you are you a larger peter sellers fan is it strictly the party um until recently it was strictly uh the party and big panther um although also kind of getting ahead of myself 
in in preparation for this, I actually watched two of his older films, uh, The Millionaires from 1960 and uh, The Road to Hong Kong from 1962, mm. because those were the films in which he played an Indian character for the first and second time, uh, the wow. party being the third. Yeah. <laughs> he loves it. Um, <laughs> oh, I actually realized that I, I had more exposure to Peter Sellers than I was giving myself credit for, because uh, speaking of parents indoctrinating us into stuff, my parents were big fans of The Goon Show, the radio show that he was on um, in England back before his he went Hollywood. What What is The Goon Show, if you had to describe it for listeners like myself who have no idea? <laughs> the Goon Show is almost like the blueprint for Monty Python and Kids in the Hall and other, like, sketch comedy, co- like, any sketch comedy collective that wants you to think they're naughty. Or they're like bad boys of comedy is kind of taking a a little bit from the Goon Show because they were they were very irreverent and like making fun of the Queen on BBC One and you know playing with uh like narrative structure. I think a lot of if I remember correctly, a lot of sketches would end with like an explosion and everyone dying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just really exploring the radio space, but it's like it's um. It's one of those things, uh, like, Peter Sellers is what, like, uh, Peter Sellers' movie movie career is what American and Canadian comedians model after. And then The Goon Show is what British uh, comedians model their careers after. Very interesting. As far as Blake Edwards, I think, did he do that Casino Royale um, before there were real Bond movies? He did not, but uh, Peter Sellers... Uh, is in that movie. I think that's where I was getting my wires crossed because I've also I saw that at a bar. I saw that at um, Tonga Hut. Oh wow! I didn't mention it. I have seen that one as well. <laughs> it's all coming back. That's uh, that's one. Ebert Ebert really really hated uh, Peter Sellers' performance in that movie. As someone who was otherwise a, a fan of him and was uh, very happy to see him return and really disappear into a character in the way that he does in the party, but uh, Casino Royale controversial one in the ebert sphere (laughs) Uh, i think blake edwards most popular film is breakfast at tiffany's um which has another uh deeply troubling racial caricature um but uh it's it's all very complicated and sedan not to put you on the spot but i'm i'm really excited to hear your perspective on this and i feel like you are the person to lead this conversation and not myself thank you i'm excited to talk about it uh and you know, excited to speak for the entire rest of the <laughs> runtime of this episode. Um, you know, I'm the only one who's allowed to speak on this subject, obviously. Understood. Um, Understood. I can speak for an eighth of it. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, my relationship to this sort of thing is a little bit complicated um, because it's it's very obviously racist. It's brown face. It's minstrelsy. There's, I think, there's at this point in time, really no arguing that. Uh, but at the same time, I think there are a lot of interesting nuances he brings to his character in the party. Uh, a lot of um, a lot of choices he makes that I think um, that Hollywood performances that came after and modern the, in Hollywood performances that came after that modeled themselves on his performance in the party. Those performances ended up missing certain things. Uh, I don't want to go as far as calling uh, the character authentic, 
but it's it's more much more authentic than something like Anapu and the Simpsons because you know Hank Azaria has been very open about the fact that he was copying Peter Sellers and then there are other people who you know after the Simpsons were copying Apu so after a while you have basically three or four like generations that are like impressions of impressions of impressions so um you know, I, I guess by virtue of, I, I assume, you know, he's probably met some Indian person at some point. I actually tried to, you know, research this. Um, but <laughs> it, it seems like he was doing an impersonation of a real person, whereas everyone who came after him was kind of impersonating him. That makes sense. And I'm, I'm excited to dig into that in more depth as we start to talk through what the movie is. Um, <laughs> before, before we get too, too in the weeds with all of this do you want to give people a flyover of what the party is because i when you recommended this title i had not seen it i had not heard of it it was not on my radar at all and so i think um many listeners may not be familiar with the party sure uh the party is a story of uh, an indian actor who ends up in hollywood his name is hurundi v bakshi bakshi is a real last name hurundi as far as i know is not uh, he messes up big time on the set of the movie he's on, um, but he also accidentally gets invited to this major uh, fancy Hollywood party hosted by one of the producers of the film that he messed up uh, and messed up again beyond repair. And right. I'm sure we'll get into. I'm sure we'll get into why. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about the fact that he really doesn't fit in both with, you know, uh, fancy upper-class society and with, like, you know, a a bunch of rich white Westerners. Um, And he stands out pretty sorely and ends up uh, doing a whole bunch of pratfalls and um, making an ass out of himself while trying not to. It's incredibly enjoyable to watch if you can fully divorce yourself from the less than ideal racial politics in that, you know, he's a white British man in brown face just 20 years after India's independence from the British. So that's a whole mess of things. But yeah, it's a fascinating movie to watch because it feels so unlike most modern Hollywood studio comedies, which, uh, you know, where all the improv is very dialogue based and who can insult each other in the most creative way. Whereas the party, the camera kind of holds back a lot. It, it has a very Jacques Tati kind of feel to it, where you're just watching, you know, human behavior. You're just watching Bakshi's behavior. Right. And you're kind of waiting for something or the other to go wrong. And something is always going wrong, <laughs> even if it is not immediately evident. I, I, I like the way that you describe it as being sort of Tati-like. There, there are so many shots in the movie that are wide, that are filled with bodies. And sometimes you as a viewer are looking around to see what what is going awry or what is about to go awry. And and that that's very fun. It's it's almost like a like a where's Waldo situation. What's the <laughs> what's what's the next fuck up we're going to witness? There's um a scene during the actual dinner portion of the dinner party where there's almost like a three stooges routine going on with the drunk waiter, the, (laughs) the sober waiter with the gray hair and like just a food runner or something. And they're like Mm -hmm. running into each other with the salad and like into cakes and stuff. And, and 
three people fall down and Edwards decides to set this whole like big slapstick piece uh, behind the only high back chair at the entire dinner party. <laughs> so like most of the action, most of the falling down, you don't see, you just see their heads sort of bob up and down behind, up and down behind the, the fancy people talking. And I was like that. That's an interesting choice. It's very <laughs> funny. It's it's just it's it's constant it's constant chaos. Um, but in this in this really kind of decadent fun setting, the house is crazy. I mean, it's it's all sort of on top of a pool, and there are bridges throughout the home that uh, <laughs> can be removed uh, at the push of a button, and the whole thing is transformed into a swimming pool. It's a really really fascinating environment and they milk it for all it's worth most importantly a retractable bar <laughs> a retractable bar obviously the the elephant in the room is the the brown face of peter sellers and that's something that you're confronted with at every moment of the movie but it does have a a, a pretty incredible energy i mean the 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 sort of opening that Siddhant is referring to is um, this actor played by Peter Sellers rests his foot um, on a detonator to uh, blow up a building at a location where they're shooting this film. They've only got one shot to do it and he blows it up before the camera's rolling and suddenly he's blackballed never to be in a Hollywood film again. Um, and that's a that's a big goof. It looks very funny. <laughs> It's interesting the way that Peter Sellers frames himself. I'm always intrigued by how, like, a writer-performer will position themselves within, like, the world of the comedy. And Peter Sellers, like, goes one beyond, like, Tati when he does Monsieur Hulot, where, like, Ulo always has, like, a, a cute little flirtation with a woman, like, two decades younger than him, but it's always very chaste um, in all of the movies. And then uh, Sellers positions himself as the only non-drunk pervert uh, on screen, <laughs> as far as men are concerned. He's the only guy who is not a lush and also, like, borderline, like, a sexual assaulter. And I think that's that's interesting when it's an interesting like wrinkle to add to the brown face. It's like, ah, but he's also a virtuous, naive outsider, you see. <laughs> no, no, no. It's because he's not corrupted by our society. It's like, well, you're still positioning him as an other, and that's that's weird. But go on. <laughs> yeah, he's he's definitely it it's interesting that for most of the movie you're like, okay, this is the only guy who's not an asshole at this very wealthy Hollywood party, with the exception of the wait staff. They have a, a real human quality to them as well. But uh that's a that's a really good point. Yeah, he's not trying to be an inconvenience. He just his his very presence is just um, you know, inconvenient to uh the host and a lot of the other guests. I think both because, you know, he is, you know, messing around quite a bit. Um, while trying to blend in. Uh, but also he does get, you know, a fair amount of, you know, side eye and dirty looks and people asking, you know, who's the foreigner and stuff like that. The other elephant in the room is the literal elephant that shows up to the party <laughs> near the end. Spoiler alarm. <laughs> That's the spoiler alarm for when there's an elephant. <laughs> um, 
and the elephant being uh, covered in paint is the justification for all of the water in the home suddenly being filled with soap, uh, and it, it just it, it turns into a giant bubble bath. I've read some criticism of the movie that that feels like um, it is it is restrained up to that point, but it jumps the shark when the entire party turns into a bubble bath. I personally disagree. I think the final 15 minutes of the movie is utterly delightful for that. <laughs> I agree. I don't think you can maintain the sort of uh, cringe comedy for a whole movie. There should be some some fun where he gets to be a king of the party briefly. That's nice. Yeah, and, and plus for a movie that essentially begins with a giant explosion... Uh, I think they do tone it down quite a bit until uh, <laughs> the mansion-sized bubble bath. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, the whole thing—the whole thing—is rocking with that Henry Mancini score. You know, Henry Mancini is obviously the genius behind the Pink Panther theme, which I think, whether you've seen Pink Panther or not, that is that is something that is just embedded in the cultural consciousness. I feel like I went to dance recitals as a kid and for whatever reason they were <laughs> dancing to the pink panther theme it's just it's ubiquitous but his music and this is really great i mean there's that first moment where i really felt it when harundi uh receives the invitation for the party and you just get this big rockin number as he gets in his <laughs> car and drives and i'm like oh this movie this is a rock and roll movie and then of course it has um if to to round out sort of the the musical landscape of the movie, we have Claudine Manger, and she whisper sings a song. Claudine Manger, who only acted in one other movie, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I wonder what happened to sh- make her cut her career short. What could possibly have gotten in the way of being in more movies? <laughs> uh, uh, for for people who don't know what I'm alluding to, Claudine Manger allegedly shot her boyfriend spider savage uh the skier and so now she's probably more famous for that than for her whisper singing andy williams her ex-husband paid for her legal defense because he was still in love with her shot to death yeah she's a murderess allegedly oh fun why are we talking about peter sellers we need to be talking about her (laughs) oh i can talk about claudia and lache all day that she she was the inspiration for uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's Cliff Booth. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's yeah. like a, a footnote in the back of the novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's like, yeah, this was based on Claudine Langer with like a little bit of uh, Sunny Ho thrown in. <laughs> that that is fascinating. That's not something I knew. So Sedan, you hadn't you hadn't heard that either. No, I hadn't. Wow. wow. For me, when I saw her name as second build, uh, like, klaxons were going off in my head. I was kind of losing my mind. I was like, I have to deal <laughs> with Brownface and Claudine Lachey in the same movie. <laughs> and a guy from Mary Tyler Moore? Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> it was a big deal for me. Yeah, she wow. she was a sort of a pop chanteuse. I don't know. I don't know if she really wanted to get like a movie career off the ground, um, but she has a cover of the Beach Boys "God Only Knows" that is. I don't know if good. Here's the thing. I don't know if she can sing. She can certainly whisper <laughs> in tune, but I don't know if I would call that singing. Um, but her 
that cover of God Only Knows is on the Gilmore Girls soundtrack because they talk about it, about her in that um, TV show in season one. Oh, wow. Fascinating. <laughs> so, Bethy, I'm glad that you got through the movie despite despite the, the, the huge uh, storm cloud looming <laughs> over things. Um <laughs> But th- this let's 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 find a counterpoint here. Let's talk about some positives in some ways that the movie is complicated. Sadat, you made the point that you think that you know his his depiction is is more nuanced than one might expect for something like this. And and something else that I noticed in the movie that I thought was very interesting is the way it treats Wyoming Bill Kelso <laughs> and his relationship to Hurundi and um, yeah. Bill Kelso uses a, a native slur to refer to Hrundi, mm-hmm. and the movie does not ever seem to be laughing with him. Yeah. It seems to be sort of mocking his unintelligence in his treatment of Hrundi as an Indian man, not a not a native yeah. man. And I that that was kind of fascinating to me. Obviously, the movie has lots of problems, but those are unique choices given the context. Yeah, I think looking back. Um, I still would be able to tell you if Wyoming Bill was just making a joke or if he actually thinks Hurundi is Native American. And that, uh, I appreciate that the film doesn't, you know, try and clarify that. It's just like, all right, he's, he's saying something stupid. Let him do his thing. But yeah. And in, in terms of the actual nuance of the performance, um, so the body very directly and explicitly injects itself into the history of racist depictions of Indian and South Asian characters in Hollywood, because the film that he's shooting uh, at the beginning is called The Son of Ganga Din, <laughs> uh, which is an in-world sequel to the 1939 film Ganga Din, which is, uh, it has Cary Grant and a few other big names. Um, who's that Robin Hood actor God, from, from early Hollywood? Errol Flynn? Yes, Errol Flynn. I think he's in that too. But that movie is, you know, it's it's one of the landmark uh, Hollywood adventure films. Um, the heroes are three British officers, um, and their sidekick is an Indian man who is played by uh, a white actor in in brownface. And there are a lot of villains in brownface, and they are uh, dehumanized, and they're just very, you know these uncivilized cannibalistic villains they're they're essentially the basis for what would come later in temple of doom right but the difference i think between ganga dean and something like the party is that i think like i said i think peter sellers has probably met an actual indian person uh on whom he's based um his character because if you watch the scenes from ganga dean which have you know, quote unquote, Indians in them. Um, it's very clear that they they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> um, it's it's not like any Indian person I've ever even imagined. Like at times, it sounds like they're doing like a really bad mocking Chinese accent. Oh God! Um, at at one point, and at one point, there's there's a line that you know, now almost a century removed, I can laugh at. But one of the villains is telling all his thugs to kill for the love of curry. And um, the the body doesn't do that. But what's interesting is, in the world of the body, they have very deliberately, the producers and directors who are directing the son of Gangadin, have very deliberately got 
an actual Indian person from India to play the title character. But taking a step back into our reality, like it, it is still very much like it, it's a white person in brown face, <laughs> even though they seem in world like they're trying to be more progressive because the original Ganga Dean had, you know, so much, you know, crazy racist stuff in it that in the world of the party, they are being more progressive than the actual production of the party. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the opening scene that they're shooting is mirrored uh, on the, the ending scene of Ganga Dean with him, like, you know, blowing the trumpet to alert the British troops and all that. And that's like the, that part alerting the British troops. That's from, the poem, right? The Kipling poem? Yes, that's right. So that, that ties it into an, e- an even earlier generation of colonialism mm-hmm. and racism. Yeah. Yeah, you, you can tell. It's funny how much it kind of, in-universe, like, we got a real guy from India uh, <laughs> does sort of presage what, like, tokenist casting would become. Mm-hmm. And especially as far as, like, uh, this idea of like ticking boxes is the opposite of looking for a talented actor mm-hmm. that, you know, there were in theory, there would be like plenty of guys who like are professional, like Bollywood movie stars, even at that time who they could have gotten, but they picked this random guy and didn't really check to see if he was not a fucking idiot. <laughs> uh, because they assume that the person they're getting is, you know, not from here and therefore will be a fucking idiot. They don't like, they don't scan for also for acting talent. And that I feel yeah. like happens a lot now that there's this like perception or like preconceived notion that if you're trying to like, like so often when they, when they're like, well, we would love to cast an actual disabled actor. We just can't find somebody who's good enough or whatever. That's always, Talent and authenticity are always being framed as being in opposition in casting notices. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder what that casting process would have been like, again, within the world of the party. Did he just, like, show up uh, when they (laughs) thought somebody else was coming in for their audition? (laughs) And, like, they thought he was, like, this big star, but he just, like, was coming in to, like, try and blow his nose. And they're like, oh, great, you're here. Get on the plane. (laughs) I wonder, what was he even doing in the U.S., because he seems to have a house there, mm-hmm. but they supposedly flew him in. What I want to know is like his visa situation and all that. Because <laughs> back in, yeah, this was this was when you know things were just starting to to open up. So maybe they didn't have too hard a time. Okay. Oh yeah, because it would have been during that um, exactly during that period where America is like opening up their borders for like exceptional yeah. people. You have to like prove your worth to get over here. You guys are making me think they might not have done their research at the script <laughs> stage. Some of this, some of this characterization of of Indians living in America doesn't hold up to scrutiny. I don't know. A guy named Hurundi sounds real to me. <laughs> what is is it, and they also invented a language that he speaks, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Um. I don't remember. Does he speak any non-English language in in the film? He he doesn't, but he makes reference to, I believe, right. a hybrid language. Or or yes. am I the ignorant one here? No, you're not. So he meant he asks uh, someone if they speak Hindustani. So it's probably not what an Indian person would say because Hindustani at the time was the British term for um, Urdu and Hindi. 
which uh, okay. Urdu is primarily spoken in uh, Pakistan, Hindi primarily in India. There's a lot more, you know, complicated stuff through that politically, but <laughs> um, just to, to to break it down to its simplest form, Urdu, wow, Urdu and Hindi are uh, essentially interchangeable when you're speaking it. Like an Urdu speaker and a Hindi speaker can communicate just fine, except Urdu is in the Arabic script uh, and Hindi is in the Sanskrit script. So okay. when you're writing them, they're two completely different things, but uh, spoken, they're the same thing. And so the umbrella term, um, I think coined by the British, yeah, was Hindustani. Uh, I think this might be the most educational episode of the podcast. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. And we really appreciate it. I, I, I hesitate to comment too much on the nuances of Peter Sellers' performance because I don't want to purport to know more than I do, but but one thing that is interesting about his performance as Furundi is the fact that he is from India, from the perspective of the filmmaker, never feels like a joke. There there are the, the other characters in the world disrespect him and they they say things like, Who is this foreigner? But but it, it doesn't feel to me like the fact that he is from India is ever played as a gag, that to me feels like a vehicle for him to be a fish out of the water at this party. Do you do you disagree? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think, you know, there are, you know, certain, you know, jabs at him that could be interpreted as being specifically racist towards Indians, but, um, and again, even within the world of the film, but um, I think this is also the kind of movie where you could swap him out for any other, you know, foreigner to America and the movie would be largely unchanged. You just have to get, I guess, a different animal towards the end. Right. <laughs> um, oh, God. Because the, the way I see it, like what, what kind of reframed this role for me was watching his earlier brown face roles, which is I can't believe is a sentence I'm saying. <laughs> um, and if you watch the 1960 film The Millionaires, which is a romantic comedy uh, where he stars opposite Sophia Loren. He is the, you know, he's the object of her romantic desire. He is very smart. He's dignified. He's um, there's, there's a real depth and humanity to that character in The Millionaires, Dr. Ahmed Al-Kabir. Um, and again, with, you know, a fair few, you know, racist hallmarks to it. But watching a role like that tells me that yeah, even though he was doing a thing that we would absolutely call racist today, and many people called it racist back then, his his objective wasn't necessarily to mock an Indian person, but to uh, do justice to an Indian person. Whether or not he did is up for debate, but in The Millionaires, he even, he even speaks Hindi, and it's not terrible. Like, I understood what he was saying. <laughs> um, and he just has one scene in The Road to Hong Kong. It's kind of a, you know, a, a joke character, which barely counts when he's playing Indian again. So then that tells me that between the millionaires and between, sorry, between the millionaires and the party, the major thing that happened in his career was the Pink Panther. So what that tells me is that he was probably trying to recreate that success because he's working with the same director too, recreate the success right. of the Pink Panther uh, by you know going back to familiar territory to another you know impression so to speak which he had done before. That's really fascinating. I would you recommend checking out those those earlier Peter Sellers performances or do you think they're better left alone? Um, 
the, the reason I checked out the millionaires was just to see him in this role. I think it's you know, the movie's right. fine. You know, it's a rom com from sixty years ago. I wasn't even really looking at it through a lens of like you know entertainment per se. It was basically I want to see how he is portraying this character. Right. Um, and from that perspective, it was really fascinating to me because um, it's you know you see the similarities when you watch the two performances back to back, but you also see an entirely different physical approach. You know, uh, he has a lot of mannerisms which one might consider stereotypically Indian, which again makes me think that, okay, this is based on a real thing and not just an impression of an impression of an impression. Um, Obviously a little bit exaggerated, you know, a little bit uncanny because it's not something he has necessarily lived. It's something he's observed. So I think it's fascinating to watch if you want to compare his role in The Millionaire's one, to his role in the party, and two, to real Indian people. Right. I think from that perspective, yeah, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there there are um, characteristics, height, like, you're, you're right, usually his being from India isn't necessarily the point of the joke, but it's like there's like little sort of flares, like little racist like mm-hmm. touches to other parts of, to the core performance. But you can't say the same about the woman that comes to the party with the cowboy fella. Manja Manja, the girl who just doesn't speak English and that's her thing. Right. I don't know. There's like a lot going on in this movie. (laughs) I I do think I do think with that that particular element, not to make excuses for it, but this is a movie made in 1968. There is a rich tradition of uh, Hollywood movies being deeply offensive and insensitive. So, I mean, I, I feel like there's there's always going to be <laughs> some element of that if you're going back 50 years. But. Oh, for sure. I just think it, it's like, it, it makes sense, especially in 1968, that there is this, I think, Italian, but they keep saying she's Spanish, yeah. but she's saying manja, whatever. <laughs> Um, it would make sense if there was like an Italian woman at this party because they were like trying to poach all of the neorealist stars at the time. So it like it does add this new Hollywood thing that the cowboy is almost like an old Hollywood benchmark. And then this like Italian star is like the new Hollywood version of it. Very weird. I missed wherever they may have mentioned that she's Spanish. So I've just been assuming until right this instant that she was Italian. She just came off as Italian in the movie, so I don't know what they were trying to do. I feel like the same cowboy guy, I could be misremembering him saying, like, I don't speak Spanish, you don't speak English, when they're, like, trying to figure something out. Maybe that was just him being dumb. Unclear, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Again, the movie doesn't tell us. (laughs) So, Bethy, something that both you and Siddhant mentioned earlier, um... Or the way that this this particular performance by Peter Sellers has inspired um, many other characters, you know, Hank Azaria's performance as a poo. Um, but something that I noticed, and maybe this is just a larger Peter Sellers thing, and I'm also afraid to reference this because people make fun of it all the time, but especially the scene where Harundi is watching Wyoming Bill Kelso and his partner play pool, I just, I saw so much Michael Scott there. I feel yeah. like this particular character must have influenced Steve Carell and helped shape that performance. There is a way that he is he is so earnest and interested in really trying to ingratiate himself um, when the people are not really interested in talking to him. And the way he just sort of smirks and takes in the scene 
there's something about that kind of like uh, childlike uh, Michael Scott thing where he's really not fitting in in a room but wants to. Did, did either of you see that? Yeah, I I did see that. I I think the minute he dropped his shoe into the pond, I was like, <laughs> this is where the office got the idea for the Koi Pond episode. I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. Interestingly, there was a major Bollywood film in 1982 called Namak Halal, in which uh, Amitabh Bachchan, who's one of our biggest stars from the 70s and 80s, uh, does an entire musical number based on a guy trying to clean his shoe in this little floating river during a party, and he tries to track it down. So it's taken directly from the party. So it's influenced Indian films as well. (laughs) That's really interesting. And you you were talking about earlier... I don't know if this is a fair characterization, but you were talking almost about like a simulacrum of of caricature in the way that there is there there are performances that are influenced by um, this Rundi performance, and then there mm-hmm. are other performances influenced by that one, and so you just get less and less sensitive these these more and more sort of like yeah. sanded down caricatures. But for an Indian film to be influenced by the party, it's almost going in the opposite direction. That's really fascinating to me. Yeah, you know, uh, little phrases from the movie like "birdie num num" are things that like my dad and I might say to each other once in a while. When you you know remember watching the movie, <laughs> <laughs> Colin was telling me that there's a French DJ collective named Birdie Num Num. I'm sure and that we should check them out. <laughs> Colin, thank you, thank you for the DJ uh, recommendation. To go back to that opening shoe gag, there mm-hmm. there are a couple movies we've watched for this show that I hadn't seen before, and there were just really incredible bits in them. Like we recently watched Top Secret. Sedan, have you seen Top Secret? I have not. Top Secret's got some pretty good stuff in it, but there's a joke at the beginning um, that's like a, a parody of a Beach Boys song called Skeet Surfing, um, where it just becomes a phenomenon with teenagers where they will go surfing while shooting uh, clay pigeons with rifles, and it's just an absurd joke to me. But uh, the opening shoe gag is really incredible. Um, and when he drops it in the fountain and he tries to fish it out with the plant and then flings it onto the tray where he eventually <laughs> takes it back as an hors d'oeuvre, it's, it's such a dynamic <laughs> bit. And there's, you know, the, obviously there, there is the thing we keep coming back to with the movie, which is obviously the, the offensive caricature, but there really is some incredible filmmaking on display and, and, and a really patient unspooling of bits and jokes that unfold over several minutes. Um, and that's something I really appreciated about this movie. Yeah, and uh, I think to kind of incorporate what you were just you know, referencing, um, a big difference between you know characters like Apu and everyone who came after that uh, is that a lot of the times the joke is on Indianness, whereas with Burundi, that is not always the case. The joke is on human behavior. The joke is on right. his awkwardness, his outsidership, uh, the little ways in which he, you know, tries to hide his mistakes, and uh, that's why you know we're able to kind of sit back and watch all of it unfold, and you know we would be able to enjoy it. I think most of it without sound as well. Right. I feel. I feel a great uh, empathy for Hrundi and his misfortune, you know? I it, the the discomfort that I have felt going to a weird party in Hollywood with maybe people I recognize and, and I have no business being there. I don't know how to talk to them. I don't I don't know how to behave at the party. So when I'm watching this, I say like, "Oh, there is there is obviously a great element of this that I can't possibly identify with, but there are elements that I do." Um something you just mentioned about a lot of the movie playing well without sound 
dovetails back into something that we talk about in this podcast so much is what movie plays well at a bar without audio that just you know kind of functions on a level of spectacle and I feel that. Bethy, is there a bit from the party that you think would slay at HMS Bounty? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think the Cornish game hen on the tiara, that's always going to (laughs) go. And also just the the secondary, like, there's sort of, this party could have gone normal if only one, like, comic fool character was there, but we have not just Rundi, but the drunk bartender, the drunk waiter. Who's um, incredible. Who is my king? I appreciate a guy who drinks on company time. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, he gets into a fight. He is, like, stealing food. He gets a lady at the end. I want their marriage to go well. Love him. That There's a drunk bartender moment that's one of my favorite visual gags in the movie where they're sitting at the table. Rundi is at his very short chair at the end, which is <laughs> uncomfortable, but he's so gracious. He doesn't make a show of frustration. Um, but there is a door that keeps swinging open to the kitchen, revealing the chaos that's unfolding inside. Uh, and you see that the drunk waiter has caused his supervisor to just hit a wall. He's so frustrated with him. And for a split second, you see him strangling him through the swinging <laughs> door. And it's it's horrific. You know, if you were not watching that movie with the sound and aware of the whimsy, you'd think, oh, is this a movie about someone being murdered, you know? Um, I wanted to ask, speaking, uh, going back to the parts of the movie that are relatable, how do y'all behave in a party where you maybe don't know anybody? What's your trick to getting over that anxiety, that uncomfortability? Sidhan, to you first. I don't have a great answer. Um, I'm going to go with, I, I think I saw a lot of myself in what Hurundi was trying to do when he was trying to join in group conversations. Because, uh, you know, that way you're not the center of attention, but at the same time you are blending in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when, when that goes horrifically wrong, when he thinks he's hearing a joke, he's actually hearing a tragic story. Um, I felt that deep in the pit of my stomach because, <laughs> um, you know, not that that's something that's happened to me. Uh, and if it has, I mercifully do not remember it. <laughs> but I think more than anything, uh, I, I do relate to his sense of like, you know, outsidership in an environment like this. Um, because, you know, like you said, having been to parties in LA, like Thomas said, um, and also just, you know, being an outsider in the US, because I lived in the US for a long, to- a long time as well. And, you know, not necessarily knowing 100% of like, you know, the, the social cues and social customs. And it kind of works both ways as well, because, you know, if people aren't familiar with me, they might read something I do a certain way as well. Um, so it's about trying to blend in by both observing and talking and, you know, just working your way in bit by bit. I related hard to when he tried to make friends with a bird, because that's also a classic move at a party you don't know anybody. It's like, oh, I will be the pet's friend at this party. It's okay that the people don't like me because I have won the animal's affection. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I relate to that as well. I uh, went to a social function recently, and I would say that my my social aptitude has been diminished by something like a year indoors, and I'm still working my way back to uh, my previous somewhat 
socially outgoing self, but I went to this this function. I didn't know all but one of the people there, but there was a large dog. And so I just was petting the dog the whole time uh, and <laughs> staring at the dog. And I felt very comfortable being in the corner with that dog. Um, I, I personally try to avoid social functions where I don't know <laughs> most of the people there because I have a tendency to think that people are looking at me or, or more aware of my awkward presence than they really are. And so I just, you know, try to avoid that situation entirely. But I think I'm with Satant. I would uh, approach a group and hope that no one clocked my presence. <laughs> De-individuation there's, is my hope, yeah. There's this, there's this interesting tension that Burundi um, seems to be experiencing, which is you know, the, the combination of invisibility and hypervisibility depending on the situation. Because, you know, at some point he wants to get involved in the conversation and people don't notice him. And then at another point he wants to blend into the background and ends up, you know, pressing all the switches on the house and turning on the loudspeaker. <laughs> um, so it is this question of, you know, when do you want to be seen and when do you not want to be seen as well? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's a really great characterization and not something that I would have been able to articulate. I think about Rundi accidentally shooting Wyoming Bill Kelso with the <laughs> dart gun. <laughs> and then when when Bill looks up, Rundi is already like across the pool. Yeah. Like staring off onto what I assume is like the edge of a canyon. I don't know. Because it's a set, but I think it's supposed yeah. to be like that's like a cliff face that they're on. It's such a good way to get a laugh just from an edit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, 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 I really like the way you articulated that, Sadat, and I think the way that a lot of these jokes in the movie function for me is like they are extremely wacky, but I also feel for him, and I really feel mm-hmm. his discomfort. And so, at that intersection of sort of empathy and absurdity, uh, the movie has a really special quality. There's one personal story that this movie kept making me think about to the point where I would just keep bringing up to Colin as a bit as we were watching it later. But speaking speaking of being invited somewhere where you don't know anybody, and it's maybe like a fanciest place you've ever been. Uh, this is a story that I think I'm allowed to tell at this point. But I accidentally locked myself in Barack Obama's bathroom. i took i took a meeting uh for a show of his and the only bathroom was like his private bathroom and i had to pee before the meeting because i was nervous and i uh the door does not work in that bathroom (laughs) and i had to text (laughs) i had to text the assistant who let me who like let me into the property that I was trapped and needed help getting out. Wow. And then Holy I had shit. a meeting after that with like, like somebody like eight, eight steps down. But I just kept uh, being like, this reminds me of the time that I got locked in Barack Obama's bathroom <laughs> or as somebody speaking as someone who was locked in Barack Obama's bathroom. This is, <laughs> he's making this too hard on himself. You need to have some grace <laughs> You need to give yourself some grace. Allow yourself some grace, Wendy. I should know. <laughs> I locked myself in. <laughs> That's what the remake needs to be about. 
because there there was actually going to be a remake of this movie in like 2003 but like like Spielberg was going to be involved either directing or producing it um and it wasn't going to be an indian character uh, it was going to uh-huh. it was going to start mike myers yeah of and, course it was and uh, i'm glad I'm I'm glad Mike Myers wouldn't have played an Indian character in that uh even though he eventually went on to anyway. Um but I don't know how I feel about you know remaking the party with a non-Indian. Like I I feel conflicted because on one hand it's like oh hey no brown face but on the other hand it's <laughs> like that that movie holds a special place in my heart. I did keep thinking about I assume this is where the love guru comes from when this com- came out. And that was that he does such a weird thing in that movie where he is playing a white guy who just was raised mm-hmm. in India and that's why but I don't think he doesn't know Hindi, I don't think. He just Yeah, he just, he just with speaks with with an exaggerated Indian accent that I I assume even if it wasn't directly influenced by the body, it was probably indirectly in some fashion. Yeah. And that that kind of comes back to the point that you were making, Sadant, where people think when when doing these caricatured performances that just by doing an accent they are doing what Peter Sellers was doing in the party. But but yeah. what you were saying is that there was a, a depth to that performance that is just lost um, on some of these imitators. Yeah, like you know, what's the joke with someone like Apu? Even though I think Apu is a, again a fairly nuanced and interesting character. A lot of the time, the joke when he's speaking is his accent. Uh, even right. if it's not pointed out, the accent is meant to be, you know, funny. Whereas I don't think that's the case with Burundi. Especially because so often his performance is nonverbal, or even when he's talking, part of the joke is that he's like whispering. It's so much of it is inaudible <laughs> because he's like so uh, shy or tentative or trying to make himself smaller at this party. He's like things could be easier if he spoke up for himself more. <laughs> and it's interesting that you mention uh, the bits where he's trying to feel small, trying to feel, you know, invisible, trying to blend in. Like, I remember one bit where he's walking with his hands behind his back. And that, to me, like, screams middle-aged Indian man, walking with your hands behind your back. I'm like, all right, that's racist, but you've got it right. <laughs> <laughs> The party racist, but sometimes gets it right. Yeah, I mean, even if you look at the contemporary reactions to the film, which I was really fascinated to do during all this research. And by the way, before I get to that, you know how we we often say like, oh, you know, it was more acceptable than it was whatever, whatever. Um, my big question when someone says that is more acceptable to who? <laughs> because <laughs> this movie was flat out banned in India initially. Uh, so obviously people took issue with it, but just as many people seem to have loved it. Like our prime minister at the time, Indira Gandhi, she was a huge fan of this movie, uh, especially the line um, in India, we don't think who we are, we know who we are. That was something she really enjoyed, even though it was her government who ended up having to ban the movie because of all the protests. <laughs> um, but simultaneously, the, the filmmaker Shotajit Rai, who you may know in the West as Satyajit Ray, he did the uh, the Opal trilogy. He was going to work with Peter Sellers. But according to a friend of Rai's, um, he saw the party and was disgusted by the performance and said, I'm not working with this guy. Right. But what's interesting is the role that he wanted Sellers for was Indian. <laughs> so the party was just him doing... I think he was more offended by the fact that he was doing Indian 
poorly or badly or offensively rather than the fact that he was playing Indian. The the quote I saw from Rai was like, uh, me working with Peter Sellers now is as likely as, uh, I don't remember, like a specific apartheid South African white guy working with Stephen Biko. Mm-hmm. It was like, <laughs> it's that likely. And then, then he sort of shrugged and went, oh, well. I love that the quote has the oh well in it too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> eh, what do you do? I, I I do think with a with a movie like this, it is very interesting to hear about kind of dueling contemporaneous reactions because there is there is nuance um to a lot of this in, in the way that it is received. Yeah, I, I enjoyed watching this. It feels like uh, a fever dream uh, of a movie <laughs> a lot of times. And it, it made me think of um, After Hours, which I wonder, you know, I wonder if Scorsese was was pulling in some ways from his experience of watching The Party, just a person who who just unwittingly is fumbling into misfortune after misfortune, and it eventually snowballs into something greater. Obviously, that's a very different tone, but um, I do think they are they are cousins. Just one rough night. In this case, funnier. <laughs> <laughs> also, something that occurred to me while watching it this time was. Um, I can see where Rowan Atkinson got a lot of his inspiration from Mr. Bean. Mm-hmm. You know, not just the attire and not just the the painting gag in the bathroom, which seems to become the entire premise for the Mr. Bean movie. Um, Whistler's but, daughter. Yeah. Whistler's mother, wasn't it? Oh, you're right. Get it right, you bean faker. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, just, you know, Hurundi's like mannerisms and, you know, the way... Oftentimes the joke is like the way he's leaning, the way he's looking at someone, the way he's trying to move in and out of someone's orbit. That really reminded me of Rowan Atkinson, specifically yeah. as Mr. Bean. Because it's also hard sometimes to figure out pe- who is inspired by the party and who is inspired by Tati because of how much the party is inspired by Tati. Like, it, he admittedly so. Yeah. But I think the thing that both Mr. Bean and Hundi have is being much more self-conscious about how they are in the world. Like, Hulo never really seems to notice the havoc he's causing. Mm-hmm. He thinks he's just a polite guy having a nice time. He doesn't. He never <laughs> really notices that the world is falling apart around him. He's just sort of going, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just <laughs> doffing his cap at everybody, never really um, noticing that, like, a door has broken or, like, the fountain is, like pissing more than usual <laughs> um whereas mr bean and and Hrundi both try and like cover up their mistakes in a way that yeah. um that he doesn't i'm a big bean head by the way but not, i still haven't seen B- the bean movie the, the one that's just called okay. bean but um one of my favorite movies is mr bean's holiday so make of that what you will i've i've, I've only seen Bean, so Satant is right. I'm a, a bean faker, as he called me. Um, I'm the only but... bean completionist here, the <laughs> bean or whatever you want to call it. We'll have to we'll have to have you back for the special bean uh, episode. <laughs> but um... I'll, I'll, I'll drink for that one. <laughs> good, good. Uh, Bethy, Bethy, you mentioned a gag that that really killed me, which is the pissing statue. 
Um, and and so there is there is a scene in the party where Hrundi uh, finds a, a panel of buttons, um, and he starts to press them, and chaos <laughs> unfolds. They all correspond to very strange functions of this home that you would probably not rig to a lighted button panel. But one of them <laughs> is there is a green button that he presses, and it makes a pissing statue piss harder. <laughs> And, and that, that's so funny to me. And like the the house that's too automated is lifted directly from Mon Oncle, but uh, I don't think that there's a pissing statue in that. There is a fountain that goes too much and like also starts to like get backed up and and go uh, so like different parts of the ground just become fountains in that movie. But uh, it it is a specific Blake Edwards touch to have it coming out of a Cupid dick, like. That that's innovating the space. I will give him that. Hey, do you guys have a button that turns up the piss? <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, is there is there any any other elements of this you'd really like to cover, Sedant? Are there are there is there anything else you would you would want to say to to prime a fresh viewer for the party? Come with the racism. I don't think there's much else to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the party is great if you, you know, have the ability to separate yourself from you know, the obvious messy racial politics of it, which uh, I guess I was able to because, you know, I, I didn't really grow up uh, in a place where racism was really a concern for me. You know, I grew up, you know, and, and in India where... Um, I didn't have to worry about this sort of performance defining what people around me thought of me. So I, I guess South Asian Americans might feel differently about it, um, and South Asians in the West in general, which is fair. Um, you know, we all have different relationships to this stuff, but I know that my dad in the 1970s, uh, when it came out in, in India, he was really excited to go see it because he had heard that, you know, a famous... Uh, Hollywood actor was playing in India. So this sort of thing you know, clearly changes over time. And, you know, uh, is it appropriation? Is it racism? Is it acceptance? It really just depends on your cultural experience. So if you are in a position where you can separate yourself from that and, you know, you can accept that, look, Peter Sellers is long dead. It's it's fine. He can't hurt you. Um, <laughs> you know, go ahead, watch it, because it's a fascinating performance. It's a very human performance. It is a very racist performance. Um, it's all of those things. And I think it's it's really interesting to reckon with 50-something years later. And I I hadn't seen it in, I want to say, almost 20 years. And I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. From start to finish, very few caveats. There's something very interesting about a scene near the end with the elephant was specifically when when Rundi is telling the woman, the girl, who I guess is like the teen daughter of the people who own the house, I think? Mm -hmm. Unclear. Yeah. He basically, like, tells her off for appropriating his culture. <laughs> and then she's very responsive to the critique. So it's like this weirdly yeah. well-modeled, like accountability call-out moment, but it's done in brown face, and I feel like my brain turned inside out when it happened. Yeah, I feel like if if that scene was recreated today, it would be like, 
you know, the, the, the hippie characters, the teens, they would be like the modern day, quote unquote, SJWs or whatever the hell. <laughs> but, but, but the movie isn't necessarily vilifying them either. It, it seems to be about foreigners and hippies and specifically, you know, then uh, an entire gang of Russian musicians who comes in later. It seems to be about like uh, a lot of fears of foreignness, a lot of fears of change that the, the movie is completely hip to because the the characters, the more uh, stiff upper lip sort of characters, the, the ones who have this like, polite veneer, uh, they seem to have an idea of how you should be on the surface. You know, you need to, you know, not make an ass out of yourself, which is fair, but they all have something very dark lurking under the surface. So, you know, the whole thing of politeness and them being dignified is a facade, whereas everyone else, the foreign characters and, and the teenagers, they just show up as themselves. They are who they are. And so there's a sense of honesty to the, to, to put it simply, to the invaders in a way. Like, these are the forces that are taking over America, but they are honest and simple. And, you know, what, what you see is what you get with them, whereas it's rich white America that is kind of trying to dictate this is how you should be, but there is such a hypocrisy to it in the movie. All of these ideas make the party really sort of fascinating as a meta text. And I keep thinking mm-hmm. back to something you said earlier, which is that the production within the party um, <laughs> is is in many ways sort of more empathetic and sound <laughs> than the actual production of, of the film, The Party. And that... <laughs> That that is such an interesting idea and such an interesting textual tension that that again makes this this really unique and I think worth checking out if you are able to sort of compartmentalize and take for granted some of the really glaring issues. One more glaring issue that we haven't really talked about is like the one producer who like assaults Claudine Langer. He's like the only of those of the like party establishment guys, he's the one who's coded Jewish. Oh, okay. Also, he says some he says something in Yiddish, and so there's like let's let's throw that in there too, <laughs> as far as like the uh, the different uh, people coming together and who's hiding what, and this idea that the of of what to be American really is, and that the one of the hypocrisies is that this guy has anglified his name but he's still speaking in Yiddish and that like fits in with like his toupee and his assaulting women behind closed doors shtick. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't think about that. I, I also miss that Bethy, um, the way that character was coded. So that's uh, interesting. I, I think I will watch this movie again. I think um, that the quality we were talking about earlier about how there is, there is so much happening and you're sort of looking for, you know, the, the thing that you're supposed to be focusing on in a given frame, because the direction of the film doesn't necessarily tell you. Um, I think there is plenty that I would catch on a second viewing. Yeah, it's interesting that this is the third movie we've done on the podcast with Brownface in it. And each of them is all, has been a movie where we go, there's a lot here. Right. <laughs> there's a lot to unpack, because it's Cloud Atlas, Ernest Scared Stupid, and The Party. All have I for- people playing. Forgot about <laughs> I forgot characters. about it in Ernest Scared Stupid. You're right. Cloud Atlas reminded me of what I wanted to say. Um, in that, uh, even though Blake Edwards directed both, there is a world of a difference between Peter Sellers in the Party and Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's in terms of what those characters are trying to do. Just in case anyone listening was 
wondering if there was any kind of you know overlap if they were worried that you know a, a whole movie's worth of uh you know uh, making Rooney and breath- breakfast at Tiffany's would be too much to stomach <laughs> it is not that that is something that even I watch today and get like very weirded out by whereas I was perfectly comfortable watching the body that's that's a good clarification thanks for that it's been a long time since I've seen breakfast at Tiffany's and I worry that uh, <laughs> uh, revisiting it might uh, diminish it compared to my memory <laughs> Sidhant, thanks so much for coming on. This has been so great. Uh, we'd love to have you back every week. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to do this every week. This is a lot of fun. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll we'll add it to the we'll add it to the weekly schedule. Um, Bethy, unless there's anything else you'd like to add at this point in the pod, we usually ask where where we can find you online. Sure. Before that, could I just drop a bit of semi-related trivia that I couldn't bring up organically? It does have to do with Peter. Please. Stuff. So, please, please. But it's a nice way to cap off this conversation. So, um, the film The Millionaires, in which he played an Indian character, I think, you know, nuanced performance and all that, but uh, he recorded a single with Sophia Loren called Goodness Gracious Me, which charted at number five in the UK. And uh, in that, he plays it up a lot more and it sounds much more racist than he is in the movie. Uh, a couple of decades later, uh, I want to say in the 90s, a group of South Asian comedians uh, raised in Britain made a sketch show featuring completely South Asian actors. It was a huge arrival moment for South Asian identity in Britain, at least on television. The show was called Goodness Gracious Me, based on that song. (laughs) Because they weren't allowed to use the original title, Peter Sellers is Dead. That's That's what they wanted to call the show, as like a statement of like, (laughs) yeah, <laughs> the body is dead. It's our time now. That's incredible. Yeah. Peter Sellers is dead now, and he can't hurt you. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, but yeah, you can you can find me on Twitter at Siddhantadlaka. You can find me on the Instagram I don't use by the same name. <laughs> uh, you can find me in COVID isolation for question mark number of months. We'll see what happens. Um, and if I could, I could recommend something that Siddhant won't recommend himself. I would say check out his series specifically on Christopher Nolan. He also wrote uh, a great piece on the Saw franchise recently. But I feel like his deep dives, your deep dives, I'm talking to you, Thank you. Uh, Thank are, you. are really incredible. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Bethy. Yeah. Are you online? <laughs> I am. It's true. Uh, I'm at Bethy BSQU on Twitter and at Bethy Squires on Instagram. Thomas, you have a Twitter. I do have a Twitter, yeah. Uh, you can find me at uh, at handsome underscore pal, occasionally posting screenshots of uh, text conversations between myself and Satant when we get into it about uh, Annabelle the doll and how <laughs> she should be more jacked uh, and how if she were muscular she would be more frightening within the conjureverse um, annabelle creatine you know annabelle creatine <laughs> <laughs> we uh we we have a show page on twitter that is at uh, movie bar pod um and we also have an instagram that is uh movie bar underscore pod correct hell yeah well this has been a party and once again we have our classic sign off that we use in every single episode Peter Sellers is dead and he can't hurt you (laughs) (laughs) 
Watching Movies at the Bar is edited by Colin Jenkins, with show art by Lindsay Tharrell, and that theme you hear at the top, that's Quentin Mulligan. <laughs>